Musical fans likely know today's guest from his role in the original Broadway production of Fiddler on the Roof, but if that's all you know about him, you're missing an awful lot. As an actor, his credits range from the original production of Oh Dad, Poor Dad, Mama's Hung You in the Closet and I'm Feeling So Sad, and The Last Sweet Days of Isaac, to the 1997 Broadway revival of The Diary of Anne Frank, and the 1999 national tour of Finian's Rainbow. As a director, his work includes The Runner Stumbles, the 1981 revival of The Little Foxes, Steppenwolf Theatre Company's production of Detroit, which is slated for Broadway this fall, and the current Three Sisters at Classic Stage Company here in New York. And as an author, his plays include Uncle Bob, Booth, Orson's Shadow, and the book for A Minister's Wife, coming to Lincoln Center Theater later this spring. Welcome to the American Theater Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing, and I am very pleased to meet the multifaceted, multi-hyphenate Austin Pendleton. Thank you, Howard. Same to you. Let's start with Chekhov. Okay. Oh, great. You currently have a production of Three Sisters uh, at Classic Stage. But as I look through your extensive list of credits as an actor, as a director, as a writer, I've noted, and there probably are more, five Uncle Vanyas, four Three Sisters, and an Ivanov. And as I say, I'm probably missing some others. What's the lure of Chekhov for you as both performer and director? It's very hard to say. It's it's sort of hard to say in a way that expresses something about Chekhov because people have been trying to define him and his power as a dramatist for a hundred years or more and no one's ever quite nailed it. <laughs> So I don't exactly know what the power is. I just know when I first read these plays and I I think I encountered all of them first through through reading them. I just thought I'd never encountered anything like this before. I, I never have come across playwriting like this and I haven't since either. Hmm. I've, I've come across other playwriting I like even almost as much or maybe even as much in certain instances. But um, – it's very part of the power of Chekhov. I mean there's arguments over a hundred years now about are they comedies or are they tragedies? And the point of that is that they are neither. They're some indeterminate mixture that has no name and therefore they come to me awfully close to capturing what life feels like. But to go back to these plays – multiple times. Sometimes I'll hear a director or an actor say, I'm not sure I quite got it the first time. I'd like to try it again or that's why I'm trying it again. But five Vanyas, four Three Sisters, and as I say, there may be more. Why do you keep going back to them? Because they're inexhaustible. Every time you go back to a role such as Uncle Vanya, for example, you've, it's like you've never played it before. I mean whatever's happened to you since the last time you played it and the very fact that you're doing it with different directors or different actors, all these things give you a whole new startling perspective on the character you're playing. And as a director, you simply take – you multiply that by the number of characters there are in, in any one of the given plays of his. It just keeps exponentially – Increasing. It's always new when you come back to it. When you choose to go back to one of yeah. these plays as a director, do you go into it saying, I'd like 
these people in key roles and if I can get them, then I can build the show around them? Or do you literally just begin casting from scratch because you want to do the show? That's what's happened. That's what's true. You just say I want to do – I mean people ask me to do things and either as an actor or as a director. I don't go around proposing projects to people. Hmm. I mean often I will audition for a role. And in fact, I've auditioned for the part of Uncle Vanya a couple of times or a theater will come to me like, like well, right now I have this extraordinary association with Brian uh, – Brian Kulik. Kulik at CSC who called me kind of out of the blue two and a half years ago and asked if I would direct Uncle Vanya, which went up a couple of years ago right now. And um, I said, yes, I didn't expect that invitation. Hmm. So then he was happy with that show. And so he assembled me and a few of the actors who had been in Uncle Vanya and, and we're doing Three Sisters now. But uh, but I don't – I just don't seem to go to people and propose projects. Hmm. Or another way of putting it is that whenever I do, that never seems to work. <laughs> now, maybe so, it's faulty background, but I didn't mm, see Cherry Orchard, for example. The Cherry Orchard. Have you done that as well? I've directed that twice each time oh. with Olympia Dukakis, first oh. at a summer theater in New Hampshire and then at her own theater a couple, about a year after that, which was when she had a theater, was in Montclair, New Jersey. So, so you've really you, – you've, you've looked at, at all the big ones. Yeah, and then I've acted twice in the chariot each time as, as Trofimov, you know, the perpetual student. And by, and by the last of the two times I played it, it was like really a perpetual student. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the first time was with, with Olympia at Williamstown. And the other time I played it was also at Williamstown 10 years later with Colleen Dewhurst. Hmm. And – I've done – I've twice acted Constantine and the Seagull and once directed it at the Blue Light Theater here in New York wow. in the late 90s. And I acted in Ivanov once. That's the only connection I've ever had with Ivanov. Mm -hmm. And that was at the Yale Rep in uh, 20 some years. Like in 1990. Was that the yeah. William Hurt production? Yes, it was William yeah. Hurt. It was Yes, who was wonderful. And it was directed by Oleg Efremov, who was then the artistic director of the Moscow Art Theater, who did not speak a word of English. Speaking of language. Yes. Any time you do Chekhov. Yes. It has been translated. Presumably you've never done it in Russian. That's right. You've worked, as far as I can tell, with different translations yes. in many cases. How do you as a director choose? I don't usually choose them. Really? Yeah. I chose for Uncle Vanya Carol Rockamora's translation of Uncle Vanya, which is beautiful. And Brian was very, very pleased with that too. But he, it was very important to him with Three Sisters to use the Paul Schmidt translation because Paul was a very close friend of his. And he knew that Paul uh, was particularly proud of his Three Sisters translation. Because I'd read that you very much enjoyed w when you had done a version, the Lanford Wilson translation. I enjoyed that too. There are a lot of good trans. I mean, there's Carol Rockamora, there's Paul Schmidt, there's Lanford Wilson with Uncle Vanya anyway, there's David Mamet. These are all really good translations. Does, again, whether it's as a director or an actor, do the translations influence how you work on the show? We talked about how the cast is a variable. How much of a variable is the translation? Uh, there are tonalities that are different that you have to take into account. It's wonderful to have the translator around as, as we had on 
Uncle Vanya with Carol because she could explain. And I, I so want to work with her again on one of her translations of one of those plays. You hmm. know, because she's around and she's very. She first of all, she's very supportive. No, not first of all supportive. I mean that that's a beautiful thing. But she's also just incredibly intelligent about th- these plays and the world of Chekhov and so on. And she can give you certain and the cast certain pieces of information that are just you didn't you wouldn't have heard of it. Otherwise. Well, if I recall correctly, she has a doctorate in Russian history, Russian literature. I'm sure so she, yes, she knows she does. the territory. Yes, she does. And she's very – you know what she is? She's very gracious. <laughs> she's very respectful of the artists that she's working with. But I guess if you're working with plays of such vintage that the playwright themselves obviously is not going to be present, right. <laughs> having the translator there gives it's, you it's a little of the yeah, feeling and of I having loved her a translation of Three Sisters. And of course, I, I wanted the translator on. Paul unfortunately died ten years ago. I somewhat knew Paul. He acted in a play that I wrote, hmm. and at the opening night in New York, his present to me was his translation of Three Sisters. This huh. was in 1994. So when Brian was really anxious to use Paul's translation because of his own friendship with Paul and the quality of Paul's translation, which is wonderful. It also had a – I mean I couldn't say no. I I loved Paul Hmm. and I knew how important this translation was to him and he wasn't going to be here and an equally fine translator would have been able to be here. But it seemed so important to Brian and these things become important. If Now, if I hadn't liked Paul's translation, even though I loved Paul, I would have said, listen, <laughs> Brian. Mm. But no, he it meant a lot to him and it meant a fair amount to me too. So here we are. Interesting. Well, we've got so much ground to cover. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's go very quickly through your youth. You grew up in Warren, Ohio. Warren, Ohio, yeah. Was theater a part of your life growing up in Warren, Ohio? Hugely because my mom had been a professional actress and director before she married my father and she settled there in Warren. He had a, he owned a small company in Warren and she settled there with him just before World War II. And I was born just, just before World War II. Then right after the war, some people in the town – that was a thriving town. That a lot of industry there, a lot of mills and, and you know, it was a thriving place. But how much theater? There was none on the community theater level. So so a bunch of people of the community decided they wanted to start just after the war. This was a community theater in Warren and they came to her because they knew of her experience just for advice I think. And she got involved and, and for all the rest of the years that she lived there. Uh, she moved away from there in 1990 after our father had died. She participated in that theater. She acted there. She directed there. And the first productions that they did were rehearsed in the evenings after dinner in our living room. Oh. And I was like six or something like that. And uh, (laughs) I I was just – something would happen to the house even when you knew they were coming, when you knew they were coming over after dinner. And coffee would be made, and the, and the furniture would be pushed aside. And of course, I was supposed to be in—I was supposed to be in bed, um, as was my brother and my v- very young sister. But my brother and I would sneak down, and we would watch the rehearsals for a while. Hmm. So, and that—that that, that was it. Did you start appearing in the community theater shows when they needed kids? In or one, you yeah, in? one really small role I did. Mm-hmm. 
I still haven't got, and then a few years after that, I still haven't recovered from having been turned down for the role of the newspaper boy in a streetcar named Desire. Hmm. You can't have everything, I guess, and and not <laughs> one you think you can go back and play now. Of I, I would, I would, if I were offered it now, I would have to think twice. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. when you went off to college, was it with dreams of yeah, oh, totally. being in the theater? Totally, totally. That was then. What what happened was because actually the community theater in those days, and I think it still is doing this. From everything what I understand. They were doing really good work. I mean really good community theater work. And when I say that, I, there's something I mean. Really good community theater work to me is more exciting to watch than ordinary professional work is. Why? Because it's, it's so electric with their connection with the desire and their hunger to be on the stage. And if it's good theater, uh, I mean, if it's a good theater group, they although they're not professional actors and they haven't had that degree of training or, the, or that degree of years in the theater, they still, they know what they're doing. And uh, I remember, and, and in those days, what the theater was, what they were primarily, I mean, they started out with Noel Coward and people like that, but then they really got into, they got into Tennessee Williams and Arthur Miller and and of course, those plays are so wonderful, mm. and uh, thrillers they did. And mm. It was just I and I would go whatever show they were putting on. I would go like almost every night, and see the different reactions of the audiences. And it was very thrilling. And then some friends of mine and I, when we were in junior high, we began a little theater group of our own down in the basement of mm. our house. You know. And you um, were in the studio theater downstairs while the adults were rehearsing upstairs. Well, no, the 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 <laughs> community, the, the adult community theater only, only rehearsed for like a year, maybe in our living room, if if that, and then they moved on to to greater things, you know. Well, you moved on to Yale, yes. But at Yale, you were really thinking about being a writer. Is that so? Well, I I don't know what I was thinking. Of. What what I do know is that in. After I graduated from high school, in other words, in the few months between that and when I started at Yale, I was an apprentice at the Williamstown, what is now called the Williamstown Theater Festival. And it was the first year they had apprentices because it was the first year they were an equity company. And a year and a half before that, uh, my brother and our parents and I had been had been traveling around during the spring vacation to look at the colleges and we, and, and we went to Williams. And there were these posters up all over about the summer theater, which was at that time still a non-equity company. But the kind of plays they were planning to do that summer, which which, would, which was a year before I, I ended up going, but were plays like – and this was 1950s in, in, in summer stock, were plays like Tiger at the Gates <laughs> and St. Joan and Tennessee Williams and stuff. And I thought – this, I said, do they have apprentices here? And so my dad wrote and found out that they they would have in the following summer when they became equity. So my cousin Lila and I went into New York in spring vacation of that year and we auditioned for the Williamstown Summer Theater as it was then called Apprentice Program. And then we were two of like 12 apprentices that year. They now have like 100 or something. <laughs> And we built the sets and we drove around and collected the props and we played small parts in the plays. And there were maybe 12 equity members in the company. We all lived in one in, – we all lived in one place and we would rehearse all day and build sets all day and, and, and be involved in the performance at night in one 
capacity or another, and then we would all go to the Williams Inn and drink, and we would go swimming. It was just at way way late at night we would go swimming, and and the uh, it was just. <laughs> I mean, there was never – and one of the – one weekend early in that summer – this is an important moment. One weekend early in that summer, after we'd begun to put the, the plays on at Williamstown that summer, uh, uh, my parents uh, uh, came up from Ohio for the weekend and they brought a couple of people from the community theater. And one day one, – one day between the matinee and evening the, of the two days they were up there – I was sitting out at the motel they were in and we were having a picnic out there and between the matinee and evening and this one actress from the community theater said to me, do you know what I'm feeling? And I said, well, she said, I'm feeling you're set. You have really found what you want to do. I remember that moment. Did you feel you were set or it was the I, affirmation? of When she said that, I knew it was true. I mean, I think I, I would have, hmm. I would have come to, but but it's it's the it's the moment when you, it's such a strong feeling you haven't even been thinking about it, that you all of a sudden it acquires a clarity. Hmm. Well, since we're telescoping your career, you graduated college in 1961. That's right. In 1962, you are playing Jonathan Rose Petal in <laughs> the premiere of Oh Dad Poor Dad with Joe Van Fleet. Barbara Harris and directed by Jerome Robbins. Yeah, I'm still. Had you been scrambling, looking for stuff? How did you get well, cast? Well, when I was a senior at Yale, the spring before that, all of that. I mean, one time I was in New York and I got on the train to go up to New Haven. And in, the, at that, in those days, they had a bookstore in Grand Central and they had the play, the printed play, Odad Pordad, which had been done at Harvard. And of course, one had seen announcements of that play in the paper because, I mean, first of all, the title. But also, it was written by a brilliant Harvard undergraduate, Arthur Coppett. And it had already attracted the attention of some Broadway producers and so forth. And I was in the bookstore before I hopped on the train to go up to New Haven and there – I said, oh, I'll read this. And I read it on the train and I thought – well, first of all, I liked it enormously. But I also thought, you know, if I could ever get an audition for this part, I probably would get the part. Much like – much as with Vivian Lee and Scarlett O'Hara. <laughs> I, I, uh, I just thought – and I thought it almost calculatedly and objectively. And I thought if – when I come into New York in the fall, if they're looking for somebody, I'll find a way to get an audition. Then my brother and a friend of ours from Ohio who was in the community theater group who was older than we were and and I we all flew we all flew to England, the three of us, immediately after I graduated from Yale. And I was an undergraduate at Yale. I wasn't ever right. in the drama school. Okay. And there we saw that a Broadway had a production that was bound for Broadway but was first going to play in London of Odad Bordad mm -hmm. was out of town uh, in an out-of-town tryout in in Cambridge with Stella Adler. Hmm. And the part of the boy, as you would have to call him, I guess, was played by that wonderful young English actor at the time, Andrew Ray, who I'd just seen on Broadway with Joan Plowright in A Taste of Honey. He'd been a child actor. He hmm. was a somewhat prominent actor as a child. And in A Taste of Honey, he had been extraordinary. Oh, I mean, I still remember that perform that whole evening 
but and his performance. But anyway, so we thought, well, you know, oh, so they they have a show, they have a production of this play that's going to come to Broadway. First is on the way to London, then we'll come to Broadway. Well, and I said, you know, well, too bad. I, you know, I thought I could get that part, but clearly I waited, you know. But it would be fun. To, so we hopped on a train that night and we went up to Cambridge and we saw it. And Stella Adler was extraordinary and Andrew Ray was breathtaking. And I thought, well, and somehow the show didn't quite work. The play is very, very hard to bring off. But it, it, but and it had wonderful things in it, particularly uh, the two performances I just mentioned. I've never seen Andrew Ray again. Hmm. I'm, I hope he's had a wonderful career. He he was breathtaking. Hmm. I remember his performance as I did in A Taste of Honey from a few months hmm. before. The first panic attack I ever had in my life was immediately after seeing A Taste of Honey. I went into the men's room at the Lyceum Theater and I couldn't come out. I was overcome with panic. Because? The play, something about the play. Hmm. I still don't know what. But was it about the play or was it about you thinking about having a career and thinking, could I do this? I don't think it was that because <laughs> I was seeing a whole lot of plays in those days. Yeah. And, and, it's just but that play There's something you. about that play. It was like the first time, which was at the Community hmm. Theater in Ohio, that I saw Streetcar where I went in, I, I went into a tailspin. Hmm. But this time it was like a panic attack. It wasn't exhilaration. It was – It was exhilaration which flew directly into the cloud <laughs> bank of a panic well, attack. we won't explore that. Okay. But, but yeah. safe to say this so, Broadway production did not come to It Broadway. came to London where it was not well received. Mm-hmm. And so, and so then, and then, and then, my brother and our friend and I, we went all over through through Europe, and then I then I came back to New York, and I moved, and and I moved in with some friends from college, and I read that it wasn't coming to Broadway, and that now Jerome Robbins was going to do a whole new production. So I went around to different agents' offices, and they said, "Well, look, you, what your credits? You've you've acted in college. You've been an apprentice at Williamstown." Um, and we're supposed to put you before Jerome Robbins for a leading role. We just—they were very sweet, but they just said we can't really do that. But one day, then an actress I'd known at Williamson was an apprentice when I was, and then had been in the non-equity company, gotten an agent. She called me a wonderful actress by the name of Nancy Donahue, who some years later played the lead in The Runner Stumbles when I directed it on Broadway. She called me and said, "Look." I was at my agent's office today and she got a call that they cannot find the guy they would like, whoever it would be, for Odad Portad. So I told her about you. She said, have him come in and meet me. Of course, I got all excited. Now, she said an unforgettable thing. She said, OK, Austin, great, great. But Austin, now don't have the part because you know how you get. Oh, well, now, you know, this is it. You know, tomorrow the world. So I went in and I met this agent by the uh, wonderful woman who then became my agent for decades after that, a woman by the name of Deborah Coleman. And um, she said, well, dear, they, they can't find anything they want. And you look like you're kind of right for it. So why don't I make an appointment with the casting director? I had an appointment with the casting director who said exactly the same thing. We can't find. I might as well have you have you audition for Jerry and then after six auditions I got the part he couldn't make up his mind hmm. and then because I mean let's face it the poor man my my auditions were uneven mm-hmm. the first one was terrific the second one was no good at all the next one was okay and he didn't know quite what to 
Finally, they called me back on the day after Christmas. I was in Ohio and said, come in one more time. And that one was with Barbara Harris. And somehow the chemistry between the two of us got each of us mm-hmm. the roles. I later learned that she too had auditioned a number of times. I've certainly heard that he was a tough director. Oh, I've – well, he, he was tough. He was exacting. He was enormously kind. He was brilliant. Hmm. So he, I, I couldn't handle the play once it opened. I couldn't handle it. After in what way? I couldn't play it with any degree of consistency, and I didn't. I didn't. I wasn't trained enough to do a thing. It's a very difficult role. I was not Andrew Ray. I wanted to be, but I wasn't. I just didn't know how. Mm-hmm. And finally, I was going to leave it. I to, and I was off Broadway, so I had a two week out. So I told the stage manager, who's still a friend of mine, I said, "Tom." I got to leave this thing. So then he said, he called me on the way to the theater tonight. Will you stop at Jerry's apartment? So I did, and I said, he said, so I hear you want to leave. I said, oh, I think I have to. I just some nights I'm just awful. A lot of nights. He said, I know you are. I read the performance. Reports. And at age, but at age twenty four, twenty five, twenty two, twenty two. Yeah. Okay, but you knew enough. Oh, you a child of three would have. I mean, I couldn't function, Howard. Hmm. I mean it was okay. – well, the character has a speech impediment and I had the same one. Now, I'd acted a lot in college. The whole reason I went into acting was was to get away from it, mm-hmm. to be free of it while I was acting. And I had to play a part where you had to do that and I couldn't control it. Mm. In fact, the – Was this stuttering? Yeah, yeah. The criticism that – the only criticism that Jerry had out of me, he said, look, I know you stutter. Why don't you use it more in the play? Hmm. He would say and he would say this compassionately. I mean he would say, I know that's not easy but you have a lot to bring to this in that department as well as the others. So why don't you do it? And I would say, oh, sure, Jerry, I will. And then I wouldn't. Hmm. And then it ambushed me. Hmm. And then from night to night, I, I never knew whether I was going to be lost in it. Which And those nights were awful. And they can't have been much fun for the audience hmm. either. Happily, Barbara Harris, was, who almost all my scenes were with, was so – Kind of gentle and understanding, and so you went to see Jerry. So I went to, to see Jerry, and, I, and he. We talked about the very problem. We didn't mince words. He said, "You know what? I can't prevent you from leaving. You have a two week out, but I really am going to insist that you don't." And I said, well, "Jerry, you, it's awful when that, and it happens just often enough." He says, "Yeah, but you know, if you don't do that, if you leave this show." You won't ever act again. First of all, you won't get hired. And secondly, even if you are hired, you'll be afraid to do it. Mm. And I want you to keep acting the rest of your life. Well, clearly he liked you. When Fiddler on the Roof came up, he did he come right to you or he, did you have to audition no, to play no, model? No, no, I had no I, – what, what I auditioned for was – he always auditioned people even if he'd worked with them before unless they were big, big stars mm-hmm. you know, like Ethel Merman or somebody. He uh, came to me. He asked me to audition for Perchick, uh, the revolutionary. And I thought, oh, great. So I thought that part is so unlike certainly Odette. Uh, and I thought, great. And he said, I want to break the image of the other show. And um, so I auditioned for Perchick four or five times and I was very excited about that. And by the last audition, he said, while you're here, would you read a little bit of Muddle the Taylor? And I said, OK. And I didn't think anything of that. 
course I'll, I will. <laughs> One person I thought I'm never going to say no to in my life was Jerry Robbins hmm. and I didn't. So th- then just a few days after that, I got the part of – and I hadn't even worked on Muddle. But that role at the time was very amorphous. Hmm. And then I ran into him a few weeks after I got hired one day hurrying to a singing lesson as a matter of fact. He was hurrying somewhere. We bumped into each other on, on at Columbus uh, Circle and I said um, – he said, oh, I've, I've figured out what your character is going to be like. And he told me in two sentences and he ran off. <laughs> And then we went into rehearsal about a year later. No, no, we opened a year later. We went hmm. into rehearsal about eight months later. I have to ask. Yes. Uh, there are stories about working with Zero Mostel oh. and that at times he might, um, let's say, even veer off the text, let alone play around with the direction. He would was that- certainly veer off – I don't know that he veered off the language so much in the text, but behaviorally, he would turn it into like a Picasso painting of it. Hmm. He would depart, let's say, from the realism of it and do these wild arabesques of stylization or shtick, let's call it. (laughs) They were, I thought, absolutely inspired. And playing on stage with someone who's doing that? I love – well, if it were anybody else in the world, I wouldn't have liked it. But first of all, I just loved him, just him, himself. Hmm. But also I thought his his f- flights <laughs> were so inspired that uh, I, just, well, I think I, I, I like to say and I, and I do believe it's true. He – I think he liberated me. I was, I was a frightened actor and somehow zero, it just – you could – Go anywhere with him. Well, that's what I wondered because he would seem so imposing and again, given the nature of his character and the character of – But the point of my character is that I stand up to him and it it changes his life and mine. Mm -hmm. That's the – in one sentence, that's the whole story of that show. If I hadn't stood up to him, he would never have given permission to his other two daughters. Well, he doesn't give permission to to the third daughter Mm -hmm. until after she's married. But he wouldn't have been open to any of that if I hadn't stood up to him so unexpectedly. Hmm. Is the way the play is structured, and it's a it's a beautiful story that play tells. And he wanted me to feel released to truly stand up to him. Also, he just wanted to have fun. Hmm. <laughs> now, the whole idea that acting that you could have fun was total news to me. <laughs> I was a geek. I was so serious. I was so uptight. I was so – so I just adored him. Hmm. Now, from Fiddler, Mm. you went to other shows. You toured with American Conservatory Theater for a season. Yes. You were on Broadway in The Little Foxes with Anne Bancroft and George C. Scott. That's right. But what's interesting to me in that Oh, Dad, Poor Dad was 62, I have – that by 1969 and perhaps earlier, you started directing up at Williamstown. It was 1969. First in 1965, after my contract in Fiddler was up, I was offered to come out to Ohio and direct my mother at the community theater in the Glass Menagerie. Mm-hmm. I was going to renew my contract in Fiddler because it was, to put it mildly, a very happy, secure place to be. And Hal said, Hal Prince, who was producing, he said, are you going to renew? And I said, well, yeah, I have this offer that to go out 
to direct my mom. And he said, you have to do that. You can come back after that. But if you do come back, you have to sign for another year. But I insist that you do that because hmm. you maybe you'll turn into a director if, if you have an experience like that. So I did go out and I decided not to return for another year just to take my chances, which is how ACT happened. But then just a few years after that, I got asked by Nikos. Nikos Chakaropoulos, who yeah, was the artistic at, director. At Williamstown, at Williamstown. To, to direct up there. He had heard the idea from Robert Lewis, who had been one of my acting teachers. Hmm. Uh, Bobby Lewis, as we called him. And Bobby, from a couple of scenes I'd done as an actor in his class, which was the tr- at the training program for the Lincoln Center, had gotten the idea that I could also perhaps direct. And so he told Nikos and Nikos said, OK. So – and I think because I'd had that experience in Ohio with my mom in the Glass Menagerie, I was confident enough to say, OK. So I began to direct at Williamstown and first Tartuffe and then Uncle Vanya. That's the first of the two times I've directed – first of the three times I've directed Uncle Vanya. And Uncle Vanya was a big hit and that began to lead to a lot of other directing jobs. Well, you became one of – I mean Williamstown famously, especially under Nikos, the same core group would return yes. not was, necessarily every year but there was a family there. a whole lot there. of the time. And yeah. you did shows at Williamstown, you know, I see The Rivals, mm-hmm. um, uh, Orpheus Descending. With I mean, Olympia. And on and on. Yeah, right. So, so that was an opportunity. But for someone who had done an undergraduate theater degree, mm. who at this point, you know, you'd only really been acting for seven years when yes. you started directing. That's right. It's quite extraordinary. There are so many directors who begin as actors, move into directing and don't go back. Acting, Howard, has always been my everything. First of all, it's like athletes who you learned had polio when they were a kid. If you spent your childhood and your teenage years and into your 20s even having a hard time actually talking and acting became a way out of that, although – there was a delay there in the Eurovote but essentially became a way out of that. It's everything to you. Now, there aren't as many parts you get offered when you're the age I am right now, but I still I'm, – I'm acting right now in a show that, that, um, that I, I act whenever I can. Um, but I would never have thought uh, that, that I wouldn't go back to acting. But because you have countless directing credits. You were directing – on Broadway by 1973 when you did Shelter. All that was because of Uncle Vanya mm. up at Williamstown. You know, and then 74, a Maurice Schiskel play. Seven, no, um, I, I, I acted in Oh, I'm sorry. My yeah, mistake yeah. there. Um, uh, so, but by 76, The Runner Stumbles. That's right. Which you had done in a couple of different productions Van previously. Club, yeah. I mean, as a director, you had all of, you know, all of the right things were happening for you. But you chose to to go back and forth between the two. Now, you mentioned that you're acting right now. You are acting in a small, off-off-Broadway production of Small Craft Warnings, which you also directed, correct? Yeah, it was some students of mine I teach at HP Studio. They came to me a little under a year ago and said, would you direct this and would you be in it? Well, I, I like directing plays with students and the students of mine in them because – 
there are two aspects to learning how to act. There are things you can with great legitimacy learn in a classroom, just what goes into preparing a role, how to approach the work and all that. But then there's this other aspect of, of learning how to act, which is being up on a stage in front of people and and handling that. And the only way to do that is to do it. And so when they came and they, they said, we're going to rent a space on, on Theater Row and we – and then also they what they were asking me to do, both to direct them in and to play a role in, was a late play of Tennessee Williams. And he's, well, like a whole lot of people. I'm just I'm nuts for him. <laughs> well, what's fascinating to me, and, and Small Craft Warnings being one example, you have acted time and time again in, in some cases, very small companies yeah. doing productions – of major plays, but it's not about the scale of the theater or the number of people who can get in to see it or the length of the run. Right. Is it simply because it's the part and it's a chance to get back on stage? Yes. Hmm. Um, also, I've gotten to play certain roles that way that otherwise I would never have been asked to play, including all the – I mean Hamlet, <laughs> which I played when I was almost 50. And Richard III, which I played twice under those circumstances, and Richard II, and some and a couple of Greek tragedies and all this stuff. And I would never get off be offered in what's called the mainstream to play those parts. Now, Howard, an acting career is a wonderful thing if you work often enough. You don't have to work all the time, but to go through an acting career, which is constantly, it can be joyous, but it's always stressful. Often it's kind of humiliating. Sometimes it's degrading your thought of as a very, in a very kind of limited way. You don't get a lot of opportunities even for ordinary parts that, that for some reason you don't get asked to play. To go through all of that all your life and not ever play any of the really great roles is terrible. Hmm. So when I began – there was a point in the late 80s where my acting career as far as New York was concerned seemed to be essentially on the rocks. As happens. And then I began to get these offers like Hamlet out of the blue in a church loft on the Upper West Side. And we worked on it for a year. We did an outdoor staged reading of it. Hmm. Then we did a workshop of it. And then we finally we did a showcase of it, you know, on and off for a year. At the end of, at the end of that year, each of us in the cast got a check for $80. Hmm. In the middle of that, I think I made a couple of movies. I did, you know, other things. Because I do have a family. But to not be able to – and then Hamlet was a success. It was well-reviewed in the New York Times. You couldn't get into it. All we had up there in that church loft in June, the showcase was, was a little old electric fan. We would have to begin the show half an hour late of people trying to get in and all that. Hmm. And word gets out about that kind of thing in the showcase circuit. So that same – group or other groups of that kind began to offer me other big leading Shakespearean roles, which I never thought I would have the chance to play. So and, I, and how, I mean, I've never been asked to play Quentin in Small Craft Warnings before, mm -hmm. which is an extraordinary role. And uh, yeah, so yes. So I see this as a corollary. You know, we've always heard the phrase, there are no small parts, only small actors. I guess the corollary is there are no small theaters. That's what I think. Hmm. That's what I think, yes. Interesting. Now, mm -hmm. let's segue to your work as a writer and then yeah. come back around to everything. When you were still in school, mm -hmm. you first had the idea about writing a play about Junius Booth. 
Okay. I'll try to make this very brief because I could go on for hours about this. But actually, it can be said in just a few sentences. When I was an undergraduate at Yale, there was and there still is this extracurricular organization called the Yale Dramat. Sure. Okay. In those days, I don't know. I don't think they still do this. But in those days, every spring, they would put on an, an original new musical. And different sets of undergraduates would collaborate on different shows which would compete with each other to be picked. So when I, I heard about this when I arrived at Yale and I thought I just read in high school the novel Tom Jones, which at that time had not yet been made into a movie and wasn't that well known other than a book you, that in some places you had to read in high school. And I loved that book. And I remember thinking this would make a wonderful musical. I sort of thought it abstractly. And I got to Yale and I found out about this, the competition that happened every year. So I found some other guys and we – it was – before it was a coeducational college. It was that long ago. Um, so I said, why don't we write a musical of Tom Jones and I will write the script. And two guys were going to write the lyrics and one guy the music. And we worked on it for two years and then we presented it as part of the competition and then it was done – in the spring of our junior year. Well, mm -hmm. the junior year of two of us, the senior year of the other two. And it was this big hit. And of course, the way things always are like that when you're young, I thought, well, that means now that my life is going to be a series of triumphs. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that way anymore. But it's been, in fact, it's been, well, it's been since then that I haven't thought of it. But so then the dramat said, well, look, there's a composer who wrote some terrific music for one of the competing shows. He's also at the end of his junior year now and your composer is leaving. Why don't you – why don't you collaborate with him? This marvelously talented, quiet fellow who was a mathematician and a track star at Yale by the name of Jim Massengale. So we had a meeting. And I asked him what kind of show he'd like to write. He said, well, I don't want to write a piece of crap like Tom Jones. <laughs> he, he was very forthright. Yeah, clearly. I said, OK, then we won't. You know, I thought I'm, I'm not going to be – I'm not going to be threatened by anyone this talented. I'm not going to allow myself to feel threatened or competitive with anyone. Mm -hmm. he, he played me some of his music. I thought this guy's brilliant. He can say anything he wants about my work, which is sort of a rule I've made. I'm a good friend now with John Simon who – for many years, thought I was among the worst actors on the American stage. But he, again, he's a brilliant person and a lovely person as it turns out. But anyway, but all this began in that conversation with Jim Maskell. He, I, I think he wanted to see how I would react if mm -hmm. he called my hit musical that we'd just done. And it was not a piece of crap, Howard, <laughs> just so you know. Okay. But anyway, so I said, OK, but what do you want to write? He said, well, I just want it to be set in mid-19th century America because there's a certain kind of music I want to write. Hmm. He said a combination of Kurt Weill and Stephen Foster. I thought, well, that sounds interesting to me. I said, OK, what part of America? He said, all over America. I said, well, like actors or gypsies or peddlers then or something. I, I said, I remember a few years ago I read a, a biography of Edwin Booth and I remember the first part where it talked how he traveled around with his father who was also an actor. Why don't we look at that and see if we can – it would be a very heavy, heavy musical. But 
So I reread it and he read it and he's, we said, great, let's do it. And we wrote it. And it turned into this very intense, heavy three-and-a-half-hour musical, hmm. which we did in our senior year. Then And then Jim decided he didn't want to work on it anymore. He, he really didn't care for the collaborative act. And I'm I, in that particular instance, I'm not sure I blame him. And I don't know what ever became of him. Hmm. I must find out. But – the project. So then that the didn't. but I but meanwhile I just got obsessed with that material. Right. So I called another composer I'd known from Yale, Arthur Rubinstein. And Arthur wanted a new lyricist than what we had. So he called up Gretchen Cryer, who's been extremely important in my life in a lot of ways. So for twenty years we struggled with this musical. Twenty years, eighty three. Yes. You got it to PepsiCo Summer Fair. Yes, where it was a disaster, and I mean, kind of unqualified, almost <laughs> unqualified disaster. It was an interesting production, full of excellent actors and singers, and a, a very good director. The director of the Last Sweet Days of Isaac directed it, and and the fantastic, you know, Word Baker, and it was a good, okay production, but the show was a mess. I think it actually looked like a show that people had worked on for 20 years, <laughs> you know, where 1,800 conflicting impulses were in it. And so people had always been saying, you know, this would work better if it were a play. And I'd never thought of it as a play because the circumstances under which it was conceived was a composer saying to me at Yale, I want to write, I want to write, an, I want to write a mid-19th century American musical. Hmm. So then I called up Arthur and Gretchen and I said – how angry will you be if I try to write this as a play? And Well, I think that Gretchen in particular sounded openly relieved by this point. <laughs> <laughs> meanwhile, she had written some very successful shows of her own while we were working on it with like, I'm, like The Last Sweet Days of Isaac, like I'm getting my act together and taking it on the road. And, and so they were fine that they were OK with it. And so I started writing it as a play. When I turned 50, which was a few years after the PepsiCo thing, when I turned 50, the year I also – I just played Hamlet. <laughs> I said, OK, my birthday present to myself is I'm going to write a play hmm. and it will be on this. I didn't even look at the script for the musical and I started all started over again. again. And it was huh. done at Long Wharf and then in New York hmm. with uh, Frank Langella and hmm. Paul Schmidt. Mm-hmm. Well, you'd mentioned. The, yeah. yeah. And uh, it was a um, wonderful cast and Arvin directed it at the Long Wharf. Hmm. And David Schweitzer directed it in New York as Arvin wasn't available to. It's always been very well handled. It's, however, remained the least produced of the three plays I've written. Right. Well, what's remarkable is you had this exceptionally long journey with Booth is back in town, then Booth is back, then Booth, Booth I think, yeah. was the final title. <laughs> yeah. Um, a year after it was done here in New York, then Uncle Bob is at Steppenwolf. Well, Uncle Bob was first in New York at the Mint Theater. Oh, OK. And then it was almost immediately done at Steppenwolf after that. Uncle Bob was written for George Morfogan who played it at the Mint and has since played it in an off-Broadway revival and has played it in L.A. where he won an award for it. And I wanted to write a play for George. Hmm. First of all, George agreed to be in a reading of Booth when Frank was unable to do it. And he did a great job and people sw- – it was an industry sort mm-hmm. of reading and people swarmed around George after that and said, oh, God, George, you found your part. This is this is going to do wonders for you. And that was heartbreaking because he was filling in for Frank hmm. 
who had, who it was already agreed was going to play it at the Long Wharf and beyond. And I thought, that's a terrible thing to do to George that I asked him to do this reading. Hmm. So I should write a play for him. So one day the idea that is at the heart of Uncle Bob just simply came to me, but not as an idea for a play. It was at the height of the AIDS epidemic. And, you know, we everybody thought about AIDS all the time and the horror of all that. And, and an event occurred to me that could happen between two people. I was walking through Sheep's Meadow one day, one spring day. And, I, and it's the kind of thing where you don't think of it as a play. You just think of it as a thing that could happen in life. And then, and then I thought, wait, that could be for George. So that's why I wrote it. Hmm. If I hadn't been kind of trying to think of a play to write for George to make up for having him having been in this reading of Booth and then being unable to, to play the role of Booth, I would, I would have had the thought that Uncle Bob came out of but I would never have thought of it being a play. But what's fascinating is in contrast yeah. to Booth, which was ultimately a 34-year journey from from Yale Uncle to, Bob was essentially written yeah. in six weeks. Yeah, remarkable. Well, it's finally like enough of spending all this time on one project. <laughs> <laughs> and then how quickly after Uncle Bob did Orson's shadow come to be? Uh, OK. Uncle Bob premiered at the Mint here with some success in 1995. It got published, which becomes important as part mm-hmm. of the answer to your question. And then it was done immediately after that at Steppenwolf. And, but, but they would only do it if I played Uncle Bob because I'm an ensemble member there. So at this point, I had two plays that were published. I had, I had Booth and Uncle Bob. So I'm out in L.A. one day in 1996, early 1996, doing a pilot as an actor. And Judith Aubergenois, the wife of Rene Aubergenois, whom I'd known since we were all at ACT together in San Francisco some years before that, in the in the mid to late 60s actually, she called me and said, come over for breakfast and here, here in Los Angeles and, and let's talk. So I hadn't had breakfast and she said, I think you should write a play about when Orson Welles directed – Olivier in Rhinoceros and by the time the play opened, Orson was no longer the director. And I said, oh, what? And she wanted me to write it for René as Olivier and, and he was there when, he, when she said this and uh, for Alfred Molina, their friend as Orson. Well, Alfred and René are breathtaking actors. I still thought, well, I'll, I'll read up. As it happened, somebody two nights before had given me a book about Orson Welles, given to me by David Schweitzer, who was the director of the New York production of Booth. He gave it to me in LA. It's a total coincidence. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I have this book. I might as well, you know. And then I came across Olivier's autobiography, kind of lying on a sidewalk in a movie I was making. <laughs> <laughs> if it, things like that started to happen. So I thought, well, I'll read up on this, but I really don't think I should write this play. The only temptation of it was the idea of Alfred and Rene. And I liked the idea, but I just didn't feel like I should write it. Hmm. But I just began to play. And, and we didn't have a contract or anything like that. It was like, So I began to play around with it. And then I couldn't extricate myself from it. I kept saying, <laughs> well – 
well, I'll, I'll take one more pass at it. I didn't show it to Judith. I didn't show it to anybody. I, I fooled with it for like three years. Finally, I sent it to her and she had certain questions about what I'd written. And then I, I got a call from Steppenwolf saying, you've written a new play. Could we read it? And I said, because you're an ensemble member. I said, you don't want to. I think it's a piece of crap, actually. And uh, they said, well, why don't you just send it? If it would help, you're an ensemble member, we'll maybe put up a reading of it and maybe you can hear what's wrong with it and it might help you as you continue to work on it. I said, well, OK, but I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed too because hmm. they had liked Uncle Bob at Steppenwolf and I thought this is nowhere near as good as that. And then they called back and said, yo, we like it. We're gonna, we'd like to do it next year. So I said, well, it has to be with Alfred and Renee and they, because I wrote it for them. I wouldn't have written it if it weren't for that. And they said, OK, we'll ask Alfred and Renee to do it. Well, they were not free to do it. So they did it in their small space. And I, and I said, it needs so much work. They said, so work on it. We're going to do it. So <laughs> work on it. So I worked on it and I got more and more excited about it. And then they found a director by the name of David Cromer, who I'd never heard of. And they and he read it and he liked it. And so he and I talked on the phone so I could approve him. I proved him without – in about a minute and a half of the beginning of our conversation. But we stayed on the phone for quite a long time and have since been friends. And then when I saw a run-through of it in Chicago, it's, it was for their small theater, I said – Nobody else is going to do this in New York if it ever gets produced in New York. And that became a problem for five years after that. Hmm. But he said, no, we're going to get you a big director. We're going to get you an all-star cast. That No, I want this. And finally, Scott Morphy of the Barrow Street Theater, who was put onto it by Tracy Letts, whose play he was doing, said, OK, Tracy tells me I should read this play and he read it and liked it. And then he said, so do you, you really want this director from Chicago? you really want Cromer? <laughs> well, also Tracy had told him had told him that Cromer was as good as he is. Yeah. So Scott agreed to it. I would long since had given up on it. That this play is not ever going to get to New York. Therefore, it won't ever be published. Therefore, it will be a fond memory. To hell with it. All because of Scott Morphy and Tracy Letts. It happened. And then it and was this big hit. was a success. Is probably the most produced oh, of your three plays. Well, no. Actually, Uncle Bob is still oh, really? the most produced. Interesting. But we had a year-long run with Orson right. Shadow. And then there's so. that – when a play has something like that for about a year after that, it's done in a whole lot of theaters. Right. And, then, and then in a few and then in fewer and all that. So this brings me to ask you about Minister's Wife. Yes. Um, how did you come to be the book writer of a musical of Candida? Well, when I was in Chicago, I got to know this man named Michael Halberstam, who's the artistic director of a theater in Glencoe. Writer's Theater. Yes. And who decided that he would like to have a musical of Candida at his theater and he hired Josh Schmidt to compose it. He had before that he had done a production of Booth at his theater, so he and I knew each other through that and other things. And I like him as a director, and I like him personally. I like his work, and I like the play Candida. But I, I didn't. I thought, you know, anybody could do this. You, you just, I mean, I wasn't really drawn to it. But then I saw 
the show that Josh composed the music for, which also directed by David Cromer, produced by Scott Morphy. The Adding Machine. Yes, Adding Machine. And I saw it 14 times. Wow. Yeah. I haven't been that obsessed with a show in a long time. Hmm. So wait, I thought, wait, your composer for the Canada musical is Josh Schmidt. OK, I'm there. Hmm. I thought it would be the easiest job in the world. It turned out to be like the hardest. Why? Well, I began to make sweeping decisions about eliminating one of the major characters and all of that. And finally, I and they said, fine, so try that. So finally, it was like taking the whole thing apart like a watch and reassembling it in all kinds of different ways. And then that began to involve having to write scenes that aren't in the in the show. And yet that had to be so the audience couldn't tell the, <laughs> who wrote what. And it, it, it would be – I mean there would be – I would write a scene. Of course, the scenes in a musical have to be somewhat abbreviated, particularly if you have a score by Josh Schmidt because if you have a score by Josh Schmidt, there's a lot of music. And this marvelous woman, they already had to write the lyrics by the name of Jan Trainin and we would struggle and to go, oh, and we fought. Oh, my God, we all fought. And we finally got the show up in, in Glencoe after three workshops and we would fight and then we'd all – out and drink together and then we'd – you know, we finally got the show up and it was a hit in Chicago and and the Lincoln Center got hold of it. And so we'll see it soon. And then we've had three workshops at Lincoln Center. So it's been written and rewritten and rewritten and rewritten and restructured hmm. endlessly. And we go in rehearsal a week from today. Wow. Now, as our time grows very short, I have to take a moment to ask about one particular production. What? You directed – Little Foxes, yes. starring Elizabeth Taylor That's right. in her Broadway debut. Yes. Um, what was the experience of working with Elizabeth Taylor? Lovely. And Lillian Hellman oh. was still with us. And yes, I read that was. you had a very difficult time. Well, difficult, but more fun than you can imagine. Oh, talk about having fights. We fought, but also she could, she was so funny. I really enjoyed her so much. Hmm. I I think I miss her more than anyone whom I essentially only knew from a professional point of view. I think I miss her more than any maybe her and Zero. Hmm. I just miss them horribly. And I went so quickly to Lillian, but Elizabeth Taylor? Well, she's just she's first of all she's a very talented actress. And part of the secret of her talent I discovered on that is her absolute openness to other actors. You get her playing something with, an, with another actor. And first of all, she's so generous to that other actor. Hmm. But the other actor uh, – and they were all much more than good actors. The other actor bursts into flame just because she's looking at them and actually uh, communicating with them. She's a lovely lady. Hmm. She's just – she's a mensch. But doing that show, I mean yeah. nowadays we see – High-caliber Broadway stars coming to Broadway often for the first time and there's incredible hoopla. There was hoopla about that production. Hoopla is to put it mildly. Yeah, I'm – you know, it <laughs> we was – We had on the road on the other hand, we had press conferences mm-hmm. and of course you had to be so careful what you said because all of it would be turned against you in the reviews. Mm-hmm. But I mean it was uh, – it was – I'd never seen anything like it. I mean and I never – and I personally never have since. Um, but see, I had a feeling about her. When they offered me the job, I thought, well, now some of her most successful work in film has been an adaptation of demanding theater roles. 
like a couple of Tennessee or three Tennessee Williams things and um, Virginia Woolf. Virginia Woolf, in which I think she's wonderful. So she knows how to play scenes written for the theater. Hmm. Which she knows how to breathe that air with highly complex theatrical writers. Hmm. In fact, the play that we're thinking of doing with her, The Little Foxes, which is demanding, but not anything like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf or Cat on a or that other one of Tennessee Williams where the woman talks about her cousin having been eaten up by a bunch of guys. Suddenly last summer. Yeah, yeah suddenly last summer. There's no comparable demand in The Little Foxes to that. Hmm. And she aced all of that stuff, I thought. And huh. so I thought – Okay, you'll have to teach her how to be on the stage and she'll have to learn about eight shows a week and all that. But the essential idea of tackling that kind of material, she's already done as much as anyone in the history of the movies. And so we're one step – we're three steps ahead here. Hmm. And then on top of it, she's just a lovely, hardworking person. Hmm. I want to finish with three questions. Yeah. To different facets of Austin Pendleton. Okay. And I have to say once again, we have we have not been specific about so much of the work that you've done over the years, and it's really quite extraordinary. But first I want to ask Austin Pendleton, yes. the actor who said he loves acting, he always has acting as the core. Though you say you don't think of things you want to do, things are offered to you. Or is, I have to audition for is them there some them. part? No. That you want to play. No, because I know – I mean there used to be when I was real young. But if you could just say, wh- what would I'd, be – Well, I'm, I'd tra- I, I brainwashed myself many years ago just not to think about that. OK. How mm-hmm. about directing? Are there plays you want to work on? Not – I mean I, I mean I just – I mean Three Sisters. I directed it 25 years ago at Steppenwolf and I guess I've always had a hunger to direct it again. And would you still do it again after this highly successful production at CSC? It would have to be a while because this production has been a transcendent experience and I would have a hard time just to re-enter it now in different circumstances. I would have to kind of have – be able to forget about it. And I may strike out with the third question but it's obvious. I have to ask. Is there anything you are thinking about writing? Oh, there's something I've been thinking about for a number of years and I've even written scenes for it. But but there's certain problems I can't figure out about it. And sometimes I think, you know, I'll just sit down and write a whole play of it even if it's terrible, which at this moment it would be. But (laughs) you you thought Orson's shadow was terrible. Well, yeah. Or not ready at least. Yeah, but I thought it was well, – first I had I had reservations about the idea and if I should write the idea. But then I got into it. But then after I would worked on it for three years, I thought it was terrible. Hmm. But here I haven't even really worked on it. <laughs> I, I do, keep doing research on it. I've written a f- handful of scenes. But there's a huge technical challenge right at the heart of it which keeps on kind of frightening me away. Hmm. And there are people such as Scott Morphy who say to me when we're hanging out in a bar in the village and I, look, you know, the reason you take all these other jobs is so you won't have to face the task of writing this next play you want to write and I want you to write that play. I say, OK, Scott, I will and then I, I back away from it. Then then you sober up the next morning yeah, and away right. you go. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, there we are. Austin Pendleton, yeah. um, 
thank you so much. We haven't even talked about Detroit, but we'll say Detroit coming from Steppenwolf in the fall. Um, mm-hmm. yes. It seems like With every Met- month yeah, or two, yeah. there's yeah. something of yours to look forward to. <laughs> or not. <laughs> yeah, right. No, absolutely. Yeah. And thank you so much for spending this time today with Downstage Center. Thanks, Howard. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from AmericanTheaterWing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing and be sure to check out our YouTube channel. If you're a regular listener to or or viewer of Wing programs, please remember that we are a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.